Who am I? 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 This is Who Am I Really? A podcast about adoptees that have located and connected with their biological family members. Hey, it's Damon Davis with a special presentation today. If you tuned in last week to episode number 148, you heard Ben say he really wanted to encourage more male adoptees to share their adoption journeys. So I thought this is a perfect time to share the National Adoption Awareness Month Male Adoptee Perspectives online event recorded in November of 2020. You probably know November is the designated month where we raise awareness for all of the issues that adoption brings to adoptees, families formed through adoption, and natural families of adoptees. For the webinar, I invited a few of my male podcast guests to share some of their own stories, then engage in a conversation about adoption issues from their perspectives. I brought back my very first guest and my lifelong friend, Andre, from episode one, The End of Summer Cake. Also featured are Tom from episode 12, I Need This For My Sanity, and Adrian from episode 132, Nearly Dying Is One Of The Best Things That Ever Happened. If you missed the original online event, this is your chance to catch up on the conversation. I'd like to host more conversations and hopefully host some of them in person someday soon. I'm working on some interesting stuff, so please take a moment to sign up for occasional emails about new events like the one you're about to hear. Go to whoamireallypodcast.com to sign up with your email address. If you're like me, you don't like receiving countless emails from websites, so I intentionally only share news occasionally because honestly, I'm too busy making the show. If you'd like to help me keep the show going and you find the adoptee stories I bring you meaningful, I'd really appreciate your support at patreon.com slash WAI really. Without further ado, here's the male adoptees perspectives session. Welcome everybody. Uh, thank you so much for joining. My name is Damon Davis. I'm the host and producer of the Who Am I Really podcast. This is the 2020 National Adoption Awareness Month Male Adoptee Voices Meetup. Um, I will tell you that we are recording this. So if for any reason you got to jump off or um, you want to rewatch it another time, this will be posted on YouTube at a later date. So the goal of tonight's session is basically to just invite adoptee voices from the male perspective. Uh, you may have seen in my invite that I was looking at the data for my show and I realized that only about 30% of the guests were male. And I found that to be really interesting. So I figured there had to be some green open space in which we could have a male adoptee conversation. So this is an open conversation. It is not intended to be exclusive, but it is intended to make it a safe space for guys like us to talk about and explore our own adoption experiences. So um, I'm going to invite my guests to tell them, tell you a little bit about themselves in a moment. But who I have tonight is my very first show guest and my brother, Andre McCallum. I have guest number 12, Tom Andreola. And I have guest, I think you were 132, perhaps, Adrian. Adrian Jones calling in from California. So I should also give a quick thanks to my niece, Kayla, who is administering this show for us from California. So thanks, love. Love you. 
Um, so I'm going to start us off by sharing a little bit of my story to open the conversation. And then I'm going to invite my guests to uh, introduce themselves to you. So I'm born in Baltimore, Maryland, and I was I had a very, very sort of well-adjusted childhood growing up in Columbia. It was kind of a utopian little society and things were good. I didn't really have any thoughts about my own adoption until a couple of things happened. One, uh, I was struggling with my adopted mom. At the time, I didn't realize she was going through some mental health challenges. And so that was putting a real strain on our relationship. A dear friend of mine had said, you know, you should probably start looking for your biological mother. I think it might settle some things in you. The other thing that happened was my my son was born. And so I'm looking at this infant child that we made out of love and suddenly I'm meeting the first biological relative that I've ever known and it's an infant. And that was really sort of an enlightening moment for me. It was incredibly emotional to see a child that we had created but realize that I had never known anybody before who was actually genetically related to me. And then finally I went to visit a family friend's uh, a family member's house and this elderly woman is sort of sharing the artifacts of the family's history in a way that I had never seen done before. And I realized if I don't go find my biological family, there's a family historian like this out there somewhere that's, you know, going to die and they're going to take all of our family secrets and stories and triumphs and challenges with them. So that was sort of the genesis of my desire to search. I'll tell you briefly that in my story, I got very lucky in that I was able to join the Obama administration and work at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services in downtown D.C. And lo and behold, when I launched my search, my social worker found my biological mother working right around the corner from me, two blocks away at another federal building at the Department of Transportation. So I got super lucky. I was able to see her daily, almost have coffees, lunches and everything. And interestingly, she gave me the wrong name for the person whom she thought was my biological father. And she didn't even realize it. I sought out this guy, turned out he was not the right person. And then by complete accident, I ended up finding my biological father through DNA testing. And basically what happened was um, we were doing some DNA testing in my wife's side of the family because my mother-in-law is also an adoptee, which means we didn't know anything about her history. So we all started to do DNA tests and my biological father popped up on my screen one night. And it was just an unbelievable experience to have this guy whom I had basically given up on trying to find show up on my own screen as somebody that I needed to get to know. So I just wanted to give you a little bit of background if you hadn't heard my own story. Um, and I'm, now I'm going to kick it over to my man, Andre, who has quite a different story. And I think that this is part of the reason that I wanted to bring us all together is because when you hear one adoptee story, you've heard one adoptee story. They're all different in their geography, in their relationship types, in the way people are conceived, in the way they are received when they come back home. And so this is why I wanted to bring some fellas together to share a little bit more about themselves. So Andre, if you don't mind, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thank you, Damon. Hi folks, thank you for joining. Uh, my name is Andre McCallum. Um, I was born in Boston, Massachusetts um, in 1972. 
dad was military. My mom worked for a computer corporation at the time. Um, mom couldn't have kids. Um, they tried and tried and tried miscarriages. So they got me. I remember my dad saying that he went through a cryptological um, security clearance and they still dug deeper in his behind for his adoption paperwork than they did for his clearance. Um, so I'm very blessed, very gifted. I grew up um, not wanting for much. Um, I remember now that the pressure was off, my parents actually had my half of my brother. Um, and uh, that was when I was two. I'll never forget this. They sat me down and said, hey, you know, you're about to have a, a brother. You're about to be a big brother. And I was like, oh, this is great. They said, we want to tell you something. You're ours, but you didn't come from us. Didn't come from you. What does that mean for a two-year-old? That always stuck with me. So my brother comes. Um, don't really think anything of it. Maybe by the time I'm in, I'll say second grade, I'm cleaning out a drawer in a dresser of mine and I find this folder. It actually was paperwork from the Department of Health in Massachusetts with all my information on there. And it had biological mother, cancer, diabetes, and cancer, diabetes, and heart disease. And I said, what, who? So I took it to my mom and she said, yes, you were adopted, we told you. And I actually thought that when I was two, that was a dream. It wasn't. And she said, whenever you're ready, let us know. Didn't touch it. Um, fourth grade, there was this young guy, his name was Gary. Um, he was adopted, everyone knew he was adopted and the kids gave him hell. I never wanted my peers to turn on me the way they turned on Gary. So I just kept being adopted as my secret. Um, I denied it. If one, I had one teacher who I'm close to this day with, um, she's 78, uh, gym teacher. She actually knew. She wound up telling somebody and I, I lost an honor. I said, how could you do this? I don't want anyone to know. That's my secret. She's like, okay. I apologize. Um, fast forward, I kept it from everybody. My best friend at our 10-year high school reunion, I decided, you know what I'm going to tell this guy? I actually told him. He didn't believe me. And I said, no, really, I am. He's like, yeah, you're BS. And I said, no, I'm really adopted. He's like, no, you're not. That's how much I live the lie, if you want to say. So 2001, I have my daughter. Um, I'm like, this is great. Still didn't want to look. 2003, I had my son. And like Damon said, I'm holding, looking at my son, and I'm like, man, I think I'm ready. And my wife said, really? I said, I think I am. I'm curious. Now, what brought that on is my wife had a rough pregnancy with my daughter. She was high risk for my son. And we're sitting in the doctor's office. And he's asking her this laundry list of stuff. And he's like, Mr. McCallum, and you? Do you have this? I said, I don't know. Sickle cell? I don't know. He was like, how do you not know? I said, I'm adopted. It was kind of like thrown back in my, I knew nothing about me. Nothing. So 
I decided to, to kick it off. 2005, I decided this is it. Took me a whole year. Took me six months to write the letter once I found the social worker and the whole nine. I drove to Massachusetts. We were living in Maryland. I drove to Massachusetts, stayed with a friend, went to the courthouse, stood in front of a judge, and she said, I can't help you. I know all your information. I have it right here, but Massachusetts records were sealed for 100 years. She was like, you have, you have to petition the court, pay us, we'll do the work for you. I get a call from my social worker. She says, what you need to do is have me do the work for you. I said, okay. So I called her. She did the work for me. As a guardian of light, they're called. And within three months, she found my birth mother. I wind up writing my birth mother a letter, sending a picture of me and my kids. And this would have been 06. And it was just incredible. Um, she sent me a letter back. And it took me another three months to, to figure it out. So 2006 Father's Day. Um, I actually went to Massachusetts to meet. And it was like monkeys um, being brought back in like I was ostracized. Everyone was looking at teeth and we're looking at moles and we're just hugging and we're trying to figure out like I finally could look at somebody and be like, whoa, you, I look like you. I look like my uncle. I have two half sisters. Um, and then I got into our story. So, you know, once we did all of our collective hugging and loving, I, I said, can we talk? She's like, sure. So we went to another room and we talked. And I said, can I ask? She's like, I'm waiting for you to ask. I'm surprised you didn't write it in the letter. And I said, how old were you? She was like, 16. And I said, oh, okay. And I was like, did you not? She was like, the circumstances of which you came into this world, you were a product of race. And I said, damn. Now, in the back of my head, I always thought it was something difficult. That's how I lived with it. I always said to myself, well, it had to be something bad. You know, those stories of everyone's got a different story. I knew mine wasn't going to be that. My parents weren't having at the right time teenagers in love and it wasn't the right time. They still had to go to college, get jobs, and do all, you know, I, so in my head, I was prepared for that. Um, so it didn't, it didn't come as a shock to me. Um, cause I was, that's just who I am. I always, always the worst. So we talked about it and it, it was, it was like, I, I wanted to. She named me. Um, I said, really? She was like, yeah, your name was Craig Leon. I said, really? She was like, yeah. I said, wow. She was like, the doctors wanted, me to name you just in case but at the time I had hid my pregnancy so now here it is eight and a half almost nine months and now I'm telling family that hey I'm pregnant um so we just we couldn't do it um but my my family adopted me uh, I think I was in foster care for three months uh, when the McCallums got me and it's just incredible I to this day I um I talk to my mom probably twice a week. Um, talk to my sisters. Uh, they're both college graduates, 33 and 35. And it's, you know, I bumped uh, the oldest girl. Now she's a middle child and I treat her like the middle child. And <laughs> it's just, it's, it's a crazy dynamic because that family, that my new family, I still have my parents alive. My wife's parents are alive. And now I have 
my birth mother and her husband. Um, so my kids have three sets of living grandparents. And then my mom has, my birth mother has four siblings. When I came back into their life, they were all there when I was put up for adoption. But what was really hard was the influx of all this information from the family. So my aunts, they were like, whoa, this is, we want to tell you this. And they wanted to bring me back to when they were kids. And all the dirt and all, I said, I can't, I can't do that. I said, I can't, I'm not built that way. We have to start from when I came into your life now and go forward. So that was hard. Um, it, it was hard to, to bring all that up. You're like, well, you know why? I said, I don't want to know. We're starting here. You know, Father's Day, 2006. That's where we begin. Um, you can give me a couple references for historical knowledge, but I don't need to know what you did to her and how this happened. I don't need to know that. Um, I came into your life at this point, and that's where I need to start. So after about a year or two, um, family kind of understood that. Um, and my birth mother was, she was very, very, um, helping and loving in that way of getting me to, getting family to know, like, hey, you can't overload him with all of that. He doesn't need to know it. So, it, it, I, for me, again, everyone's story is different. Mine turned out very well, um, for the circumstances in which I was brought into this world. Um, so, yeah. That's that's my story. Tom, to you, my friend. Thank you, Andre. Thanks for sharing your story. Um, it's always interesting hearing uh, different perspectives and different stories. Um, like Damon said, if you've heard one story, you've heard one story. Um, here's mine. Um, you know, I, I was I was also adopted at the age of three months, so I was very you know I was an infant. Um, my parents also couldn't, uh, couldn't have kids. Um, so they were, they were looking to start a family. Um, and right off, I was their pride and joy. They loved showing me off to all the neighbors and the family and, and all of that. And, um, uh, as far as I can ever recall, I, I always knew that I was adopted. They had told me from the very beginning they didn't try to hide anything and um i i don't remember when i first comprehended that um it could have been when they adopted my two older brothers um and and i was two years old when that happened um they were four and six um which was very strange for me because it sort of turned my world upside down almost immediately. Um, the house kind of came, became very chaotic uh, very quickly. Um, I remember them coming in and uh, the middle one sort of wanting to go back and complaining about the food and, and all those sorts of things. So, you know, overnight I went from being the only child to the youngest child, which um, is not something that many uh, people have gone through. It's very strange. Um, like I said, the, the house was chaotic growing up. They were a little bit older when they came in, so they had some issues that uh, were apparently uh, 
there um, uh, from from the foster home that they came from. Uh, my middle brother uh, was always causing trouble outwardly. Uh, ended up getting kicked out of a school that we were in. We were, we both went to a Montessori school, and he ended up getting kicked out of that uh, for causing trouble. Um, the older one was. Um, I guess a little bit more sly and didn't really outwardly cause trouble, but, uh, but did cause trouble in his own way. Um, I remember we'd go to, to church on Sundays and my middle brother would stand away from us. Um, four of us would be standing in one corner of the church and he would go to the other side. And, um, when we, when we were done, we got back in the car. He'd yell and scream at my parents and and cause a cause a lot of issues that would result in sort of a screaming match and my dad, you know, uh, dropping him off at McDonald's or something to get something to eat and calm down. And and the rest of us would go to the diner and have something to eat. And uh, we'd get home. And even though the house was locked. Uh, He'd be back inside. Uh, we didn't know how he'd get in and, and all of that. He, um, he was just very street smart. Um, he began running away. He, uh, uh, caused a lot of, really a lot of, a lot of trouble and, uh, ended up in a residential home at the age of 14. Um, along, along the way, um, my older brother ended up paying a lot of attention to me amongst all the chaos, which uh, unfortunately ended up being a grooming technique for sexually abusing me when I was um, 11 years old. Um, that went on for uh, several occasions, but um, I guess one day when my middle brother was home, he, he peeked in and he saw what was happening, and I think that scared the older one off for good, uh, luckily. Um, but, you know, I sort of internalized that for a long time. Um, I didn't know why, but I, you know, uh, so, sort of just just put it inward and, and, and I just couldn't wait to get out of the house and go away to college. I just needed to, needed to get away. I, I did well in school, um, never had any issues with school. Uh, I, I hid all of that well. Um, on the surface, you know, my parents never knew that there was anything wrong. Um, and, you know, I went away, did well, uh, came back and got married and, um, and, you know, and all the things that you're supposed to do, right? Um, I wasn't thinking much about um, tracking down my biological parents. I, I had thought about it from time to time. Um, you know, growing up and in college and in my 20s, but at about in my mid twenties, um, my parents came to me and they, they gave me a document that had my given name on it. And I sat on it for a little while, but it, it really piqued my curiosity because there I was and I had my given name on a piece of paper. Um, and I, I, I began getting more and more curious and decided I was going to do it. Um, it was right around the advent of the internet. Um, for those of you who are 
a little younger, you might not remember that the internet wasn't always here. <laughs> but um, right around 1995, 96, 97 is when the internet started really taking off. And um, I remember it was a, it wasn't a very common last name. So I basically, was it Google then? I don't even know if it was Google then. It might have been Yahoo. Um, basically put them put the last name in there, did a search, and one one household popped up within like a 150 mile radius. And and I just knew right then and there that that was it. So I you know I wrote a letter. Um, it's basically saying that I was curious. And I wanted to find out whether um, the, you know whether there was somebody connected there that that may uh, be my biological mom and I got a letter very quickly um, very quickly after that saying that uh, yes you, you reached the right place and I'd like to like to meet um, I ended up uh, giving her a call on the phone first um, and her husband picked up and immediately knew who I was, began asking all sorts of questions. And that just started things off on the wrong foot for me because all I wanted to do was reach out and have a conversation with her. And she wasn't home at the time that I called. And, you know, um, all of a sudden I'm getting all these questions from this guy that um, I, you know, I didn't have the heart to basically say, I'm sorry, but I don't really want to talk to you. I want to talk to her and I want that to be the first conversation. Um, she did end up calling me back. We had, you know, we had had a decent conversation. She told me that her niece was going to be getting married up in my area um, in Saratoga Springs in a few weeks, and would I like to meet? And uh, I said, of course, yes, um, I would. And uh, you know. I thought maybe it would be the two of us, but she said she was bringing her husband. Um, so I ended up bringing my wife as well. Um, it was a little bit of an awkward meeting. Um, we had brunch. Again, the, the husband sort of dominated the conversation and it became very awkward. Um, but, but afterward, we were able to spend a little bit of time together and she showed me some pictures and talked through some things with me. She, she did show me who my biological father was, his name and all of that. Uh, at that point in time, I didn't have any desire to track him down. Um, I was still dealing with um, the sexual abuse. Um, well, I wasn't dealing with it. I was still impacted by it and hadn't dealt with it yet. And so... I had all of these things kind of being stirred up inside of me at once. And um, ultimately, um, I ended up really just having to get into therapy um, for the abuse and to reconcile some of the adoption issues as well. Um, I did stay in touch with her, um, and I do kind of stay in touch with her to this day, but really, really mostly on social media. Um, so it's not like we ever fostered this, um, you know, this real strong connection or anything like that. One of the biggest surprises to me was that she had never had any other children. Um, I was really, you know, especially based on the, the, 
um, growing up with the, the brothers that I had, I, I was really hoping to establish some sort of connection with some half siblings. Um, and that didn't happen on her side. Um, fast forward a little bit, I, I began having my own uh, kids in my early to mid thirties. And I sort of had some of the same experiences that, that uh, you were describing, uh, Andre. Um, it was just amazing uh, to have my, my son and, you know, my own flesh and blood and have somebody that looks like me and um, just feel this really strong bond uh, immediately um, as he was born. And then, you know, and then having my daughter uh, a couple of years later was just, was just amazing for me as well. Um, a few years after that, I, I, I felt that I was ready to track down my biological father. Um, the internet was a little bit more sophisticated then, and the searches became a little bit easier in some ways and a little more difficult in others because he had a very common last name. So it was difficult to track him down with a very common last name. But I sort of became almost like an investigator and <laughs> using several different websites to verify different information and and all that down to the middle initial of his uh, you know his middle name kind of verifying um, that I got the right guy and uh, it took a couple letters he um, ignored the first one for the second one he basically came out and said I'm not the guy and when I was persistent um, he had his cousin who happens to be a Manhattan lawyer call me and say he that he wanted to be the intermediary um, and agreed to meet with me uh, at his office uh, when I was, um, I guess I was 40 at the time. Um, and, you know, going down there was, was really kind of intimidating because here I am um, going to some Manhattan attorney's office to meet my biological father, who, by the way, happened to be a, a very, very wealthy real estate um, investor uh, that lived in Greenwich, Connecticut and some multi-million dollar mansion. Um, and I didn't know what they were going to do with me. I thought maybe they were going to dump me in the East River or something like that. But um, <laughs> I went in there and uh, I had my wife there to protect me. Um, you know, she's about five feet tall, so she would have done a good job at that. Um, she had to wait in the lobby because um, they didn't want anybody up there. And, uh, it, you know, I, I ended up just, uh, I, I don't know, it was very, very anxiety provoking. Um, he denied it, you know, and said, I don't think I'm the guy. But, um, but hey, you know, just look out for colon cancer and heart disease just in case. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, you know, th there's more to the story than that, but I'm not going to go on right now. I'll, I'll leave that for questions. And I know there's more in the podcast and all of that. So that's, that's sort of a lot to chew on for the, for the time being. And I'm going to hand it on over to Adrian. Thank you. Thank you very much. And, and, uh, Tom and Andre, those are powerful and incredible stories. And I appreciate your, um, willingness and courage to share them as you have. Uh, and I'll try to uh, match them uh, as, as well with my story. So hello from California. 
I was born out here a whole long time ago, <clears throat> and I was adopted at 17, uh, sorry, 19 days old by a, a couple in San Francisco. I was born just over the Golden Gate Bridge from, um, from the city, and I you know, was adopted at the local hospital at 19 days old. <clears throat> when I was four and my adopted younger sister was two, we moved to uh, outside Denver, Colorado, where I spent most of my formative years uh, with dad's job then again pulled us further east to outside Boston, Massachusetts. So uh, lived there for a bit, went to LA for college. After that, lived in Brussels, came back to San Francisco, went to grad school in LA. During that period, I went and lived in Hong Kong, came back to San Francisco. And then about 14 years ago, my, my wife and kids and I, we moved up back over the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, and uh, where, we, where we've been ever since 2006. Uh, and I'll, I'll come back to why I gave you my whole life's travel plan. But uh, um, I think maybe a bit unlike, I mean, my, my approach was a little different. My parents and I totally have a, uh, uh, a spirited debate about when they told me I was adopted. I claim I was in fifth grade and they adamantly dispute that and said it was much earlier. It was just in fifth grade when the uh, proverbial quarter went down in the machine and it stuck. Um, so, uh, but to me, being adopted was cool. I, I didn't have my mind around the ramifications and PTSD and some other issues. I thought it was a way to stand out uh, and be different. I went to school the next day and started telling people I was adopted and it became part of who I was, even though I didn't have a sophisticated understanding of, of everything involved with it. Over the years, uh, I never had compulsion to search. Um, I was raised by a very loving, uh, great family, and, and my sister and I get along terrific. And so this, to me, was my family. And I knew precious little about my biological family. I'd never seen my, my adoption papers until only just recently. Um, so yeah, I just went through most of my life doing my thing. <laughs> and uh, everything changed for me, uh, relevant to some things that Tom and Andre hit on. Um, in October 2016, I was mountain biking out where I live here, some pretty strenuous mountain bike trails. And I was out riding with three friends when all of a sudden, in a snap of a finger, all the energy vanished out of my legs. And it wasn't long before I was getting entirely nauseous. And, and then a chest pain set in, and then my fingers started to go numb. And if you know the symptoms, you know that I'm describing a, a heart attack. Um, and I had a heart attack. Uh, and luckily, I had a friend who had done EMT training and he was able to help get me down the mountain. And he raced me to the hospital. And uh, I said, I'm, I'm Adrian Jones. I'm 46 years old and I'm having trouble breathing. And I'll tell you what, that's the fastest way to be seen by the emergency room. Uh, they don't mess around. Every second counts. About, I would guess, an hour later, I was the new owner of a stent valve in my Widowmaker artery. My Widowmaker was 100% blocked. Uh, that's a very high mortality rate associated with that. I was wheeled into the ICU of the cardiac recovery wing, and all the nurses hooked me up to machines, and then they left me alone to my thoughts. And the first thought, it wasn't even a thought, it was if someone was speaking in my right ear, said, find your birth parents. I was like, that's, it, it, it was so powerful. I looked to my right to see if someone was talking to me and I 
told myself, that's what I'm going to do. I got to figure out if I just had a heart attack. Is this genetic? You know, for me and my kids and their kids, we got to figure this out. And then I kept thinking it out even more. And I thought, well, maybe, you know, I almost checked out of here and maybe they wanted, my biological family wanted to know how I was doing. And if, if I'd had a good life and I wanted to give them that insurance, that assurance that I had. So I should probably just reach out and let them know. If nothing, I'll send them a letter if I can find them. And then the third one was, I always wondered about siblings. So when I moved back, when I came back across the Golden Gate Bridge in 2006, I live in the same county in which I was born. I began to wonder, although it wasn't enough to drive a search in me, but I often wondered if I was coaching, I coach youth soccer and, or used to rather, am I coaching a niece or a nephew in soccer? Am I sitting in back to school night next to a brother or sister? Uh, I'm standing in line at Starbucks. Do I might, you know, are you my mother? Uh, you know, so I started to have those thoughts, but, uh, but ultimately it didn't drive me. But once I had that heart attack, it was all systems go, I'm going to do this. I just have no idea how to do it. And I'm not as enterprising as Tom. Um, I figured when I was ready, ready, I would probably do what he did and use Google and do it on my own. But my fate was a little different. About six weeks after I was discharged from the hospital, I went to a party and randomly met a woman who asked me all about my heart attack and if it was genetic. And I said, I don't know. And she goes, why not? And I say, I'm adopted. And she says, leans, bores her eyes into me and says, well, where are you adopted? I say, down the road. And what's your birthday? And I gave her my birthday. The next day, she emails me the uh, California birth index and explained to me that there is a child on there born on my birthday that is a child born to unwed parents. And by the, the convention that California uses, we could divine that my, the last names of my birth father and birth mother. And my birth father's name was very common. My birth mother's name was uh, uncommon. So this woman uh, asked me if I'd like to know more. We went and met and went for a walk shortly thereafter. And I proceeded to tell her all I knew, which wasn't a whole lot. I thought my, my mother was Norwegian, um, uh, a Catholic and had some brothers. And uh, I think my birth dad was Italian, but I, I don't really know. And she says, no problem. She's a genealogist, it turns out. This is what she does is she helps people like us find people. Uh, and so she said, would you like my help? I said, absolutely. This is crazy. And we got back to the cars and she had an ancestry DNA kit and I spit in the vial and we were off to the races. And I mean, when, when I say we're off to the races, two days later, she texts me and says, I have something I want to show you. And I said, okay. And I went by her house and she proceeded to tell me that she used my birth mother's uncommon last name and did a search throughout the entire Bay Area of Northern California of the year of my birth and came up with two women who had who were of childbearing age, except she could find figure out one of them gave birth uh, one month before I was born. So she's out of the picture. That left one woman. And my genealogist friend said, do you know where this one woman lived? And I said at the time, I said, I have no idea. She said she lives in this county. And I said, okay, she was guess what town? I'm like, I have no idea. Well, it turns out when she, this woman, um, at one point in her life, lived in the very same town I live in now, which is a very small town. <laughs> um, and then I said, you got to be kidding me. And then my genealogist said, hey, I want to show you something. And I said, tell me more. And so she shows me a picture of a young girl and like my Andre and Tom just exploded within me that I was looking at the face of my biological mother, even though she was 16 years old. 
And we were able to get that picture because uh, high school yearbooks are public records. And it turns out that this woman attended the private Catholic high school that my daughter was already about two and a half months into her freshman year at that very same school. So my daughter, age what 14, is walking under the senior year class photo of her biological maternal mother. Now, I hadn't had DNA in, but I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that this was my birth mother. Shortly, uh, and we tracked down a birth dad who also lived in the same general area. DNA came in and confirmed my links into their families. I sent letters to each birth parent on the same day. I surrendered myself to fate. I said, whatever happens, happens. I think I'm ready for anything. I get an email back from my birth mother about four days later with the subject line, thank you. I've been waiting for this day for 47 years and I never thought it would happen. I never changed my last names in the hopes you would come find me. I mean, a very beautiful uh, embrace of an email that I got. And we talked the next day and we met two days after that and we've been tight ever since. I found out through her that heart disease runs in the family. Um, I've lost both her parents, my maternal grandparents, died at very young ages, and I lost an uncle at age 52, all to heart attacks. Heart, it's a serial killer. Well, that's nice to know now. I wonder if I what would have happened if I knew this when I was much younger, when I've made different lifetime and lifestyle decisions. I don't know. But here we are. Now I know. She has a, 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 a daughter, my maternal half-sister, and she lives uh, about an hour away from me, too. And I've met her, and that's great. And then I hadn't heard back from my biological father. It took some weeks, and my going back to my crafty genealogist friend, she was able to go deep into Facebook and figure out that I have a paternal sister, and she dated the first cousin of a good friend of mine in the town in which I live now. And I said, well, you got to be kidding me. I reached out to my friend. I told him my story. At this point, I had a picture of, of one of my paternal sisters, and I said, do you know her? And he said, oh, my gosh, she's great. She, are you kidding me? Are you her brother? And I said, yes, I want to meet her. He goes, well, she'll, she is so open-minded. I'm sure she'd love to hear from you. And he offered to help, and I said, no, you've helped me enough just by giving me that shot of confidence. And um, I ended up, she has an interior design business, and her, her email's on the website, and I sent her an email. And four days later, I met the whole paternal side of my family. And, uh, and we're all, um, together. And so I've got three sisters and both bio parents are alive. Um, it's been a very good reunion. I know many aren't and, uh, I'm, I feel blessed. And I think, you know, one of the things I explained to my parents when I it did inform them that I was doing a search, which was right after I saw the, the photograph of my biological mother in high school, I explained to them that when I connect with my bio biological family, I mean, assuming it goes well, what is wrong with having more love in our lives and more love in my kids' lives? Someone else looking out for us. Is that a bad thing? And um, they are looking out for us and they do check in and uh, pitch in uh, when they can. They all live about an hour away from, that, from us now. So, you know, Damon, I think, you know, I'll leave it there just on one final thought. I think you know, Tom and Andre talked about this too, me as well. When my daughter was born, she's my oldest, I completely lost it. Uh, I turned into waterworks like you wouldn't believe. And it was very, I was crying with joy, euphoria, shock, surprise, but I'm looking at my blood. Uncontrollable. Um, so I can totally relate to what you guys mentioned. Yeah. Uh, 
but anyway, Stephen, I'll, I guess I'll hand the baton back to you and we'll take it from here. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I will just reiterate, man. I'm sitting in the room where I cried over my son when I had the realization that he was my, my first biological relative I've ever known. It's, it's just an uh, unreal feeling. But, you know, as we've each talked about it, the four of us coincidentally have all had that crying over your child, like overjoy experience. But there, there are a bunch of adoptees out there who found out that much later in life that they were adoptees. I mean, it's just, it's so fascinating to me when I think of, I mean, this weekend will be 136 stories on the Who Am I Really podcast. And every single one of them has been different in these kinds of nuances. And as I was sitting here listening to each of you gentlemen, I was thinking to myself about some of the different pieces of your stories. I mean, I heard um, getting therapy. I heard overloaded adoptees, someone who decided that he was getting too much from the family because they wanted to go back in history and bring him up to speed from that moment. Um, there has been sexual abuse and secondary rejection, there medical issues. I mean, there are just such an array of things that any person can go through. And let's be honest, some of these things we could go through anyway were we not adoptees, but the fact that we're in a family that is not biologically ours makes the story that much sometimes more hard to fathom, um, sometimes that much more challenging to live through. And so I just want to go back through and chat with you guys a little bit about some of those elements. And since Tom, I mean, since Adrian, you are sort of last one, I'm going to go back to you for a quick second and just ask you about what your opinions are about the adoptee's need for medical information. You have had a widowmaker heart attack that literally could have taken your life in a split second. You're so fortunate, and I'm so thankful that you're still here, first of all. But the information that you got in the union is incredible, because now you have intel that you can pass to your own children, you can tell your wife about. I mean, this is like emergency information that people need to know, let alone, as you said, the kind of information that you might want to course correct on if you do get to know it. Tell me a little bit about your feelings about an adoptee's need, want, desire, right to have their own medical information. I would argue it's everything you just mentioned, um, needs and a right. I, I, I think it is our right to know where we come from and what makes us who we are and what ticking time bombs are inside of us. Like, like I avoided ever so carefully. But the, I was on the razor's edge. Um, so I'm, I'm a big proponent of somehow there's some database where biological parents can update um, that database about any medical issues that surface throughout the course of their lives so that their relinquished child could have access to that information. I don't know how to how that would work or how to build it, but I think that would be very valuable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, cycling backwards, Tom, you talked a little bit about going to therapy, which I think is amazing because I think it's an underutilized resource that a lot more people need than are actually engaged with it. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience in therapy? What did it do for you? How was it? Because listen, we're here as male adoptees talking about the male adoptee experience, but I would have, I would venture to guess that the same way few men have stepped forward to share with me their adoption journey, I suspect that that same ratio of men probably go or do not go, as it were, to therapy. Can you share a little bit about your therapy experience and, and sort of how it helped you through? 
Sure, absolutely. And, you know, back when I first started therapy, um, which was really 20 years ago, a um, little, little over 20 years ago, um, it was the stigma uh, uh, that that got me. And I had been, I had had it in the back of my mind for years before that. And I thought there would be something wrong with me if I went ahead and did it. And um, when it got to that point, it got to a point where I just couldn't take it anymore. Um, I had been around my uh, oldest brother who had, you know, sexually abused me when I was 11. Um, I had had him as the best man in my wedding. I had a few years later been the best man in his wedding and all of my emotions and feelings were hidden because I felt that I needed to keep up this appearance of being um, a strong, healthy man. And, you know, it was a few months after his wedding where I, I just couldn't take it anymore. I, I, I had enough of the fake um, going on. And I, I basically, you know, once, once I made that decision, it was like, I need an appointment like right now. <laughs> um, and so, uh, I had the appointment, I think it was December of 99, maybe, um, or December of 99 or 2000 might've been 2000. Um, and you know, fortunately the therapist I chose, which was basically randomly circling the yellow pages which used to be a phone book if anybody is uh you know <laughs> too young to remember that but um <laughs> yeah we actually used to have these paper phone books and um, <laughs> i circled my finger around and pointed to a name and that's how i picked my therapist but fortunately she was very good um and she just you know sort of took it all in um asked me a few questions but took it all in and uh you know, it took several sessions um, before I, and, and again, mainly I was going because of the abuse. I, I wasn't yet really dealing with the adoption piece of it. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it, it took several months um, of kind of like weekly, at least weekly sessions with her to figure out um First of all, how to understand that it wasn't my fault. Uh, none of you know the abuse wasn't my fault. Um, how to kind of tell my parents about it and all of that. And and I got through some very very tough times and dark years then. Um, and you know, eventually, and I stayed in therapy for a very long time. Um, mm -hmm. Eventually. Uh, she was very helpful, and then later on, I had a, a couple of other different therapists, but they were all very helpful in helping me to navigate not only the abuse but the adoption issues as I was as those started coming to the surface and tracking down my biological family and and all that, and then the secondary rejections and and those things. But I but you're right. I mean, I think I think that there is. Um, for for men, it's it seems to be that they're more closed off, um, you know, uh, 
they, they don't talk as much. Uh, I do a lot of this work, by the way, in my in my job and, and other things. And usually I'm in the you know, I, I'm usually one of the only males in the room mm. uh, professionally, too, um, when it comes to working on these sorts of issues. So, um, yeah, we do need to bring this to light more. Yeah. Um, wow. is, yeah. And now, thankfully, the stigma is much less as. Uh, as you know, as you may know, but it's it's taken a lot of work to try to get it there. Yeah, that's right. Right. It's uh, it's funny when you started therapy, you were searching through a phone book to find someone who may or may not have been capable of supporting mm-hmm. you in your needs. Now I could probably name three apps that you could get on your phone and mm-hmm. four websites you know that you could find somebody that you could talk to twenty four seven. And um, it's it's a real it's really a game changer that it allows people an outlet similar to, you know, this and other podcasts that it allows people an outlet to speak about things that they've been through and, you know, sort of pour their heart out and explore how they've been feeling. And for others to hear that and say, man, I felt like that, too. I can't believe there's another one out there. Somebody else like me who has had a similar experience or at least has had the feelings that I feel so. I'm with you 100%. Um, Andre, I'm going to turn to you for a moment. Because you've got some interesting components to your story as well. And pardon me, you managed to deal with mentally something that many adoptees have feared. Is that we would find out that we were the product of a violent act. You want to just share a little bit about sort of how you surmounted that fact and continued with your own existence. How did you... How did you take that information in and how did you let it go? When I was young, I kind of just, um, I, again, I prepared myself for the worst. Um, when you, when you, when you're adopted, you kind of, all these things run through your head. Why they gave me up? Am I not loved? Was I not good enough? I was just a baby. You know, all these things run through your head. Um, for me, only as, as an adult, holding my own children, did I have those rush of emotions, like we've all said. Um, but younger, it, it wasn't a, I prepared for the worst. You know, I, I was I was given up, right? So something was wrong. It wasn't me, but something was wrong. So for me, when I, when I found out, it was more of a, man, damn, I wish it wasn't that. But I prepared for it, um, so it wasn't a it wasn't a shock. Um, but it was hard to. I think you're the first person I told, and your podcast was bringing it out to the world. I mean, that was something that, you know, when I was younger, I would hold my adoptions. You know, I think I wind up coming out to. I came out to you, being adopted on a drive. Um, Damon and I were going on a drive. We were in high school together. We went on a drive. And I just was feeling that I just needed to scream that I'm adopted. I just I just needed to. And I said, hey, man, I'm adopted. He was like, get out of here. I said, no, I am. He was like, me too. And it just kind of, that that camaraderie for me was, was great riding someone else who looked like me and had the same lifestyle as as me and parents that loved them like me it was just great so but again i would have never once i found out that i was raped i didn't tell you i didn't call you and say hey guess what i'm a product of 
that was kind of coerced out. And I was finally comfortable with it 10 years after I found out. Mm-hmm. It took 10 years. Yeah. Me, my birth mother, I told my parents, my mom and dad, my uh, adopted parents, I told them two years later. Um, and I just told my kids who are 20 and 17 four years ago. So, you know, it's, it's still, I'm, I don't think I'm still dealing with it. I'm more open now with it because yeah. that's my story. Yeah. That's my story. Um, and I'm here because someone, you know, had a violent act committed to them, but they still thought that I needed a chance. And mm-hmm. I should be something and somebody. So, you know, I that's how I dealt with it. But I always thought it was bad, you know, at first. Yeah. Just, I always thought it was just beginning. Was that something had to happen to them to get away. Yeah. But I always dealt with it as it's incest or it's, you know, just something awful. Yeah. I think a lot of us do that too. This is, it's a natural sort of innate protective reaction that we have to the world is I don't know what I'm opening with this Pandora's box that is my journey into discovering how I came into this world. And so some of us have told ourselves fantasy stories when we're younger, especially about the stars and athletes and actors that our parents might be. And then when you get to be a little older and your brain is a little more mature, you start to think, you know, it it might not have been a, a bowl of charity. This could have been a serious thing that happened. And and many of us have ventured into that that world where we think it's possibly the worst. And but I but I say that and I realize and, a, and another guest said this very thing. She said. The way that I came into the world does not define who I am in the right. And I think that's incredibly important. And that note, when she said that, it resonated with me very deeply because I think that's a message that is applicable to every adoptee, not just someone who finds himself in a similar position to yourself. The fact that you were brought into this world means you were given an opportunity to be something amazing. And it's you, you are not defined by the way that you were conceived you are defined by the way you live your life thereafter. And even it, it sounds easy when I say it that way, not everybody's able to cope. It can be challenging to find out that you are in a family that is not your biological family and that there's another set of people out there who know you, possibly love you, are looking for you, waiting for you, what happened, what happened. So um, there's a lot to deal with there. It's, it's, it's a lot of challenges. I wanna, I wanna circle back uh, Tom, I'm going to go to you for a minute because you mentioned your work. I know you do some advocacy. When I first found you for the podcast, I was scrolling through Facebook groups and messages and things, and I saw that you were posting about some of the work that you do, speaking out and advocating. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about your advocacy work, if you don't mind. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> I found it to be, honestly, to be very therapeutic to begin speaking publicly um a lot about my sexual abuse experience i I think i did that one first um uh and that was probably back in 2014 ish um 
It was a very scary thing to do. And I, I remember I was, um, I was invited through uh, my therapist uh, and the, the organization was doing an event called Walk a Mile in Her Shoes, um, which was, um, you know, an event about sexual assault. Uh, and and they, uh, they wanted to have a, a male survivor speak about it. Um, I did that. That was my first speaking engagement. And since that point in time in 20, I think it was 2014, um, I began speaking publicly, um, both outside of my job and, and through my job, because I, I work on, I work in the area of juvenile justice and, um, a lot of the, a lot of what drives, um, issues in the area of juvenile justice is trauma and, um, you know, issues that, that sort of are demonstrated through behavior and things like that. And so I've been fortunate to be able to, um, do some speaking engagements through my regular professional job and outside of my professional job. Um, I, I also, uh, wrote for adoption.com for, a few years, I've I've got about a hundred articles uh, that I that I wrote between May of 2014 and uh, probably sometime in 2017. Um, those are all those are all available out there on the on the internet. Um, and I've done some advocacy for legislative change, um, specifically for the the Child Victims Act in New York State and for. Um, for uh, the original birth certificates, which, uh, you know, the year anniversary of that uh, bill being signed into law just, just passed this past week. So very exciting. Um, we got that, we got that bill passed and, and I was able to obtain my own original birth certificate here in New York. Um, wow. I just got it probably three or four weeks ago. Um, oh, congratulations! That's cool. Yeah, thank you. So, Damn, what did what, I mean? You have you were in reunion, as it were. You've discovered the people. Did you yeah. see anything on there that? What was it like to get your OBC? Well, I was expecting it to. I, I wasn't expecting it to really impact me that much because I had you know tracked everybody down. I knew what was going to be on it. Um, but really, when I opened it, I, I got very emotional again. Um, it was, you know, it, these things, you know, um, no matter how many times you do them, the, the, the emotions still come out. Um, I'm definitely a lot more comfortable being out there and open and public about everything I'm doing, but, but that one hit me. I mean, it, it did hit me. Yeah. Uh, so it's literally the legal document that sort of certifies your entry into this world. And here you are receiving it at whatever your current age is. I mean, that's just unbelievable you know really fascinating um i want to just remind everybody you have opportunities to ask questions we're monitoring the chat so you should feel free to put some questions in there if you would like for us to try to answer them adrian i'm going to turn to you now because i know you also do some advocacy work you want to just tell us a little bit about some of the work that you're doing yeah absolutely and and uh, a tip of the hat to you tom sounds like you've done some really amazing stuff and i'm impressed by all those articles you wrote um, so I'm behind you, <laughs> but, uh, my, my, I used to lay in bed after my heart attack and, uh, wonder why I survived and what I was supposed to do with myself. 
And one of the things that was crystal clear to me is that I, I think I've survived so that I can help and inspire other people. And I'm you know, still navigating through what necessarily that means. But I look at it both from an adoption standpoint and a heart disease standpoint. So I won't go too long down the path of, of heart disease, but I work with the American Heart Association. I do speeches there and, and to the points we were making earlier, they, I tell my story to, to them and their meetings and their board meetings. Um, and I said, we must have other male survivors. And they said, well, we don't really have a lot who want to talk about, it. uh, talk about their, their cardiac event and their journey to recovery. Um, so, so I think it's a, a male thing you see even on the, on the heart disease side. Um, I formed a, a, an adoptee group here, uh, very locally. Um, there are only two of us men in it. <laughs> I've invited some others and they just didn't seem to take. Um, I've written two articles, not a hundred, Tom, two articles for Severance Mag. <laughs> um, and then I was very recently, and I blog uh, uh, as well, and I was recently tapped by the team that's going to write a new bill for um, access to our OBCs here in California. And I'm really excited to get involved in that. And uh, I can't wait to go to Sacramento and walk the, the halls of the assembly with my biological mother and stand in their doorways and say, wow, let's get this legislation passed. She's standing right here and, and she agrees. Uh, so that could be that could be a lot of fun. And, and, and uh, I have not yet applied for my original birth certificate because I think I want to do it concurrent to working on the bill in California, just so I can ex live that experience of, of um, of getting my birth certificate and the trials and tribulations real time. That's really fascinating. And it's interesting too. I mean, if you're able to get the advocacy that you're pushing for through applying for it after having the success of that advocacy be turned into legislation that gives you access would be really incredible. Oh, you know? That'd be amazing. Yeah. That's really fascinating. And I appreciate the advocacy that you guys are putting forth. It's I mean, it's something that's beneficial to literally millions of people. And, uh, you know, you may remember if you listen to, I think, the second show after Andre was my friend Laura, who was at HHS. Wonderful woman who was born in New York. And you know, she said she used to walk past the records office <clears throat> there in you know, City Hall, the library, wherever it was. Some municipal building had all the records in it. And she's like, I know my birth certificate is in there. It's behind that door. And nobody can give it to me. And I might never, ever see it. And it's just kind of awful. I mean, it's, it's again, the, the document that certifies your existence on the planet. And it's unfortunate that, um, that it's something that we don't have access to by virtue of the, the nature of adoption as, a, as an institution. It's an equality issue. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, I'll tell you what, I think it's also, a, a, you know, I view it as that's my health record and don't, you know, and you tell me about HIPAA. Well, guess what? HIPAA protects my health record and that's mine. So give me a counter argument to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I'm starting to see some questions in the chat, but let's see if we can't pick up some of the comments that are being made. Uh, as I understand, it has been very difficult to overcome the legislative efforts to keep OBCs closed. Tell us a little bit about what the challenges are in this kind of advocacy. Where did, where, where, why are, why are folks still blocked? What is the big challenge here? 
because there's some states that are I've gone to uh, adoptierightslaw.com and looked at the wonderful map. I can't remember the guy's name, but he puts together this great map that indicates which states show what level of access to your OBC. And some of them are wide open. Some of them are kind of open, but there's a hurdle in the middle. Like you can apply, but if your biological parent hasn't registered for you to gain access to your records, then you can't get them. And then there's others that are just like, I'm sorry, there's a wall here and you're not getting it. So um, you don't have to answer that. It's pretty obvious what the challenges are. But I just think it's interesting to see that various states have a variety of different blockers in place that prevent people from gaining access to their records. Um, I want to go back, Andre, for a quick second, because you've got a, an interesting piece of your story that I, I love to hear about. And for those that have heard your story, they're going to like hearing it from you again. Tell me a little bit about the end of summer cake. Mm, end of summer cake. <clears throat> so, um, getting to know my birth mother, um, she's got two girls and, um, just hoping she actually had a heart attack. She had cancer, all these things that I had seen on paper, you know, she had had. And so she was just happy to come. Um, so when the girls were young and she knew that she passed it on to me, every I'm born August 31st, so end of summer, school starts after uh, Labor Day. Um, she would have, the kids, my sisters would have end of summer cake. And I said, what is that? She was like, well, I would tell the girls that we're celebrating the end of summer. And I said, I don't get it. She was like, when's your birthday? And I said, August 31st. She was like, right end of summer so my way to it now i'm getting choked up my way of experiencing that you was to celebrate you with cake because i didn't tell the girls because they were young um i did that she did that for 10 or 12 years um she they, they had the end of summer cake and i remember pulling up my the middle girl now and saying hey did you ever have some birthday cake or a cake on my birthday. She was like, damn, that was end of summer cake. <laughs> like, yes. We were celebrating you. We didn't even know it. It was like, yeah, that was mom's little tribute to me. It was end of summer. So they would have, you know, this big cake. And it was a big, it was a big deal. End of summer cake was a big deal. Yeah. It, was just, it was just nice to know that I was being celebrated, even though I wasn't with them. She was still thinking about me. Yeah. That's kind of crazy. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. My, in my own story, my biological mother, I was born in 72. She wanted to take me back, but she knew that it, with every passing day, I was bonding more and more with my adopted parents. And so, uh, but, but she still had hope. So she bought some Christmas ornaments that were dated 1973 in the hopes that we would put them on our Christmas tree for that year of 1973 and obviously that never happened and lo and behold in the union that first christmas we spent together she handed me back not handed me back she handed me these christmas ornaments that said 1973 on them that she had kept for 36 years it blew my mind i was sitting in this room again when i opened the package and i just i burst out of tears. it was unbelievable unreal as hard as it is for us, it, you know, it's, it's, 
it can be hard for them. Um, yeah. Not dealing with the circumstances, not knowing why they gave you up. That that's always going to bear on their soul. Yeah. So yeah. any way to you know memorialize because you never know if you're if they're going to find you or not. Memorialize that child that you gave up is just a little thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Um, I wanted to. I got a message here. Someone is curious about knowing how Tom dealt with his possible anger issues regarding being sexually abused. Um, says that he too was angry and it took a while to come to terms with what had happened to him, with what had happened to him. Can you share a little bit about your, your pre therapy days of dealing with what happened to you either when it was when you were a child, but you had realized, oh my gosh, this like that wasn't supposed to happen, and into adulthood. Just share a little bit about how you how you managed the the potential anger that you felt over what had transpired. Sure. Yeah. I, you know, I, I basically um, acted out. I, I acted out in school. Um, I always did well in school, though. So that so they were, you know, the the teachers were sort of baffled by it, right? So you know, I I always did well, um, got good grades and everything, but but I acted out and I I acted silly. I um, joked around all the time. I I even use I I use sarcasm to this day, and it'll, it drives my wife crazy, but um, I still do it. Um, and I think that's a I think that's a remnant of. Um, how I sort of translated the pain uh, mm-hmm. and coping into and coping into you know um, m- my actions. Um, you know, I never. I wouldn't say uh, along along the way that you know that I ever got too close to people. Um, there was always always that distance. Um, but then, you know, but then when there were people that weren't close enough, you try to pull them in, but then you push them away and, you know, it, it impacted my relationships. Um, I would say pretty significantly. Um, but it, it was a lot of acting out, you know, that, that's the yeah. way I looked with it. Um, I, I also, um, you know, I, I did struggle a little bit, um, uh, with alcohol over the years, um, mm-hmm. never really, never really got into drugs or anything like that. But I, I, I did some struggling with alcohol along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so those, you know, th- those sorts of things were, were how it impacted me. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm seeing some confirmation of what you said in the chat, and mm-hmm. it's. It's even going to be borne out in this weekend's show. This is number 136. And I will just go ahead and scoop you and let you know that this is not an adoptee speaking this weekend. And she talks about her adoptee suffering and eventually falling into uh, alcohol and drug abuse. And I think, and she remarks that in a rehab situation that she found herself in, with her daughter, she was astonished to see the number of adoptees in the room with her daughter who were in this drug rehab because they too were self-medicating. Many of them were very sad and angry and hurt and 
couldn't understand and things along those lines. And it's it's a combination of things. Um, so it's 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 just it's really interesting to think about what the anchor of adoption does on the life that sort of comes after it and all of the experiences therein. And and some of us are, are very fortunate and other others of us have some challenges in the way that we grew up. And so I want to say to you, Tom, I really appreciate your bravery in speaking up. I think it's, I'm glad that it's cathartic for you because I know that it's, you know, cathartic for me to speak to adoptees and have them bring their stories out. But I think it's incredibly brave of you for to, to own what happened and speak about it because it makes it okay for other people to speak about it. Even the question that came up in the chat, had you not been here to admit what you've been through, this other guy would not necessarily have said anything perhaps. And so I think that each one of you in terms of speaking out about what's happened to you has has opened a lot of doors for other people because now we don't feel alone in what have we've experienced. We know that there's someone else out there. They're okay. We are going to be okay too. And I think that that's incredible. Um, I want to hit on one thing, which is some of you have talked about advocacy and writing and all kinds of stuff. I want to encourage folks to find your outlet, whatever that is. If it's podcasting, if it's blogging, if you are ready to write your book, do it. Don't wait. Just start scribbling down your story. Write your Facebook posts. Start a podcast. Do some advocacy. Whatever it is that you feel is going to help you have an outlet. And I should throw in there, get some therapy if you feel like you're bending and you're about to break. There's a lot of different ways by which you can find an outlet for the way that you're feeling. And I encourage you to let it go because if you hold it inside, it's eating you from the inside and you got to let it go. So I just wanted to, I, I was thinking about that as each one of you were speaking about the various things that um, have been impactful for you. And, and I wanted to just make sure to say that very clearly for everybody. Find your outlet, let it go so that you can move forward in a healthy way. I think it's incredibly important. So the premise for why we got here today was the fact that not a lot of males are stepping forward to talk about their adoption stories. So I would love to ask each one of you what you think your what you think the reason for that is. Adrian, I'm going to start with you. What what why do you think fewer males than females women are stepping forward to tell their adoption stories? Uh, yeah, and I I just had a full circle moment, Damon. I don't know if you remember how we first met. We, uh, we met virtually on Twitter. Um, once so part of my advocacy was to take it to Twitter, and I pushed out a tweet, where are all the male adoptees? You're absolutely right. I totally and, forgot, man. <laughs> and you did. You said, how about you come on my show? And uh, oh, that's how we got started. It's so funny that yeah, here we are. That's awesome. I'm glad you reminded me of that. That's so cool. Yeah. I mean, I just build on what Tom was saying earlier. I think for men, there is... Uh, a veneer, for lack of a better way to say it, to protect things that are intimate and vulnerable and to project um, strength. And I think opening up about your adoption and your challenges you've had with adoption and your twists and turns in this story that is so uniquely you and yours, I generally think it's hard for men. Um, that's sort of what I came up with. And even, mm -hmm. even when I, I have a blog site and when I was doing research on blog sites, I went just Google dot D blogs almost universally were female. Like, wow, where what is going on? So um anyways, I'm glad we're doing this so we can get our voices out, Damon, and uh appreciate this opportunity. But that, that's absolutely how it. 
Andre, over to you. What is your theory? Ego, ego, and and trying to keep everything safe. A lot of men, we don't show emotions. We try to keep like tough. It's a veneer. It's it's bravado. You know, I can't be hurt. You can't hurt me. Um, for me, you know, being an athlete in college and all that, you have that. Ah, uh, you know, I'll play hurt, coach. I'll go in. Um, you mm-hmm. always put your pain aside. You know, get the job done. I'm not gonna lie to you. After having my kid, all that's around. I cry commercials, dude. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's a wrap. Like, you know, I'll watch yes. cats on YouTube and cry. That was never, that never happened before until yeah. having my kids. It's, it's a difference. So I felt that once I had my kids, I could be less vulnerable. More vulnerable. More vulnerable. Thank you. More vulnerable. And, and I feel that I didn't want to have that big ego with them. I wanted them to know my story, and I wanted to get to know them in a different way. I grew up with a with a sergeant in the Green Beret, twenty four years. You know, he loved me. Wow. He loves me. Hugs, kisses, not gonna happen. But he will do anything for me. But that's just the way he was raised. I didn't want that for my kids. So for me, it was more of a I I gotta shuck that. But in shucking that after having the kids, it opened me up to find my birth yeah. mother. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have looked if it wasn't for my kids. If I didn't have kids, I wouldn't be here right now. Honestly, I wouldn't Absolutely. be here. Yep. The bravado would still so, be there, huh? The mirror would, would still would, be on. It would still be there. The armor. The armor, armor would still yeah. be there. Yeah. That's, a good That's way what to it term. is. It's armor. It, it, I, I wasn't ready for the world to see me that way because I didn't see myself that way. Because mm-hmm. then I see myself as a as a victim, and I'm and I'm not a victim. It's a good point. Well said, Tom. What's your theory? Yeah, I think men have traditionally um, been expected by society to kind of show their strength, um, not show their their emotions, not wear their hearts on their sleeves. Um, it's you know it, it's an issue really across the board with 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 different topics you know i mean we we try to we we talk about the same thing on the issue of uh child sexual abuse and all of that we very rarely get men to come out and speak about it um here we are with adoption um, talking about the same thing and i think in general across the board they want to um they don't want to show any weakness um in general uh i i think that um, we do need to shift the societal view of it because coming out and speaking um, and, and joining conversations like this actually shows strength. And, you know, like you said before, um, if, if we can sort of, the, the small numbers of us can, can come out and take the lead and, and do this, I think others will begin to see that it's okay, um, and and we'll start to shift that. We'll we'll shift that dial a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I'll I'll share a theory that I sometimes contemplate, and it might not come out necessarily politically correct, but there's a level of truth to it. I think, um, in any any woman who's been in a relationship with a man can tell you, like, it's probably pretty hard to get emotions out of him, right? And 
a piece of my theory on that is if you think back to when we were kids, you know, girls, we know, mature faster than boys do. And uh, they start talking about their emotions way earlier than we do, right? They are on the playground and having sleepovers and in, you know, groups among themselves. And they're talking about boys that they like and how they make them feel and how cute they are. And, and just the, at the base level, they begin a practice of expressing their emotions, whether they know it or not, way in advance before we do. And it's not until guys get into like high school, probably, you know, when they start to have like a decently serious girlfriend that they can even express some level of actually liking it and being public about it. And by that time, women are far advanced on where they are in terms of expressing their emotions. You make me feel like this or whatever the like really intellectually, like the really emotionally intelligent expressions of emotion are when we haven't got anywhere near where they are in terms of that level of practice. And I think, as has been said in the chat, there's a societal pressure as well. Because if you think about it, I was joking about this, maybe with Dre or somebody else. If you can imagine, like, football practice. I played lacrosse. Can you imagine me standing there talking about a girl that I really like and am feeling emotionally about? The fellows would be like, yo, what's wrong with you? All these ladies out here and you're like being all emotional. Get out of here. And it's immediately pushed down, right? You're not encouraged to say, you know, what that feeling is and have it be like, oh man, I've been there. They're like, shut up. And it, it becomes a thing that you feel like you shouldn't express because it's not embraced by potentially the guys who are closest to you. And so my, that's sort of, that's my theory is that there's a lot of societal pressure that is put on guys not to be emotive, right? You, you know, you see the, the Michael Jordan meme where he's cried and if the whole world's making fun of him, but no, that's like a guy's allowed to have some emotion. And so I think just in general, I, it's important for each one of you guys and everybody here and anybody who ends up listening to realize like it's okay to have your emotions, to express them openly because they're yours. They're not going away. You need to embrace them so you can deal with them. And it's the anger over what has happened to you. It's the raw emotion of seeing your biological parents' names on, you know, OBCs and in online and seeing pictures of them for the first time. Like that stuff is the raw emotion that you have had inside that you can't really, you can't fight it. So you may as well embrace it and let it be what it is. So I will step down from my soapbox now, but I hope that. That I've said something that resonates. We're about at time. I've I've found this absolutely fascinating. This was everything that I hoped it would be. I really want to just express my appreciation to Andre, Adrian, Tom for your vulnerability, your transparency, and just your honesty about what you've been through and where you are now. Um, I'm hopeful that others will take something positive away from this. And, uh, and really take some strength from your openness and, and transparency. So thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you guys. This has been really fantastic. Thank you. Thank, thank you, David. You. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Take care, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. We're going to put this on YouTube a little bit later. But for now, I want to wish everybody a great night. Thanks for coming. And I wish you all the best.